Good morning. Today's uh, scripture reading will come from 1 John uh, 2.28 through 3.3. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1083. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know him, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has... And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's good to see each member, uh, to think that... Uh, we make a worship to God a priority in our life and our week, and to think that we're surrounded by so many others that do is truly a great encouragement. As we think about the encouragement that we are to each other and even the responsibility that we have to each other, we're reminded of God giving us the responsibility to care for orphans. And this coming Saturday, we want to invite you to a breakfast that we'll have here. It will be a breakfast that will give you the opportunity to learn more about a work with the Timothy Hill Boys Ranch. It is the only Orphan's Home, child care agency that is associated with the Church of Christ in all of the Northeast. And there are many connections to this work here in this congregation. And we want to encourage you to be a part of that breakfast. It's a wonderful way for you to learn uh, about this great work. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to give to this work if you so choose. But we'd love for you to come and be a part of that breakfast. It'll be at 8.30 Saturday morning. This is your invitation. If you're waiting for an invitation, this is it. We'd love to have you, and we hope that you'll be in the Fellowship Hall Saturday at 8.30. Also, as we think about reaching out and making a difference in the lives of others in the name of Jesus Christ, we think about sharing warmth. And many of you have already brought in coats, jackets, and sweaters, and they're greatly appreciated. If you can, put that on your to-do list for today or at the latest Wednesday night, then if you forget those two times, go ahead and bring it next Sunday. We're collecting coats through next Sunday, but we'll also be handing out these coats beginning next Sunday. So all that we could get ahead would be uh, very beneficial in the planning process and a part of We Are the Sermon Day. Uh, there'll be a group in this congregation working along with also uh, those uh, members of the Hispanic congregation to go out and to find individuals that would benefit from the coats and also let them know that there are, uh, there are worship services and Bible classes on a regular basis here in the Spanish language. And so it's a wonderful way to make a difference in a benevolent way as well as in a spiritual way in introducing Christ to individuals. Also, broader than that, we are the Sermon Day. There will be something for everybody to be involved in. The hopes is that everyone would leave Sunday afternoon to spend three, four hours out working in the community in the name of Jesus. Uh, when you go to your Bible classes after this service, everyone's invited to a Bible class. We have classes for all ages. In those classes, they'll be discussed today about the activity that your class will be sponsoring and where you'll be doing that. 
if what is being done there is not a match for your skill set, you're welcome to sign up for another project. Those projects are uh, in the center of the foyer here, just left of the information center. You'll see 10 or 12 different projects that anyone is welcome to sign up for any of those. The adult uh, auditorium Bible class will also be using uh, the sign-up sheets out there uh, as, as you participate in We Are the Sermon Day. It was a great success last year. So much was done. It really was amazing. But then again, when you think about having a few thousand hours of, of man labor, of, of manual labor uh, being done uh, in, just, in just a few hours' time, no doubt a great difference is made. And so we look forward to seeing the good that can be done in the name of Jesus Christ this next Sunday. So be, be uh, very much aware of that as you go into your Bible classes in a few minutes and uh, be prayerful and be looking forward to how we can be involved in our community in this way. What have you done since August the 5th? You know, to put that in perspective, August the 5th, that's about two weeks after Vacation Bible School was over. That was one week after a stateside mission trip was complete. That was along about within a few days of when we had the back-to-school Sunday evening uh, emphasis. Think of all the things you've done since August the 5th. Can you imagine being one of those 33 miners in Chile, in San Jose, gold and copper mine that's been trapped there ever since August the 5th? You see, today is their 67th day. At the beginning of this, the question was, of course, are they alive? And then when they found alive, the question is, can they survive? Can we get them food and water and oxygen? And then once that was figured out that, yes, we could do that, then the question came, can they survive psychologically? Will they be able to stay there if it takes them to the new year to rescue them, which that was the prediction in, in most of the experts' prediction, is that they'd be down there for months and months. You know, it's interesting to think about being in a place that you know is not your home. Being in a place that you stay 24-7, that you know you're not made to live there. You see, these men, their quarters in which they dwelt most of the time, they could go out into some tunnels from time to time, but they had one room. It was between five and 600 square feet, just the size of a very large living room. 33 men living in that area. It's there that those men began to have the opportunity to make contact. And their morale changed whenever they could receive letters, whenever they could have videos to talk to their wives, to their mothers, to their fathers, to their children, to their brothers, to their sisters. You see, as they're trying to survive, of course, on the surface, 2,000 feet above them, rescue attempts began to be made. And the rescue attempts were made in, in a, very, uh, a very aggressive fashion. Instead of bringing in the best single drilling equipment that could be, they decided to bring in three different rigs, three different styles of drilling, in hopes that one of them would be successful. And so for the last 33 days, a plan A, plan B, and plan C have been taking place simultaneously. And yesterday, plan B was successful. And you see the man receiving the hug in that screen that we just left. His name is Jeff Hart. You see, he's the drill operator of the T-130 drill that was plan B. He's from Denver, Colorado. 
He was called in an emergency situation and he's been working day and night there. Plan A and plan C had some complications and, and they simply were not successful. But yesterday, his drill was able to reach the tunnel that they were hoping to reach that eventually over the next few days they would be able to establish a means of rescue. Can you imagine as that bell was sounded yesterday? You see, one of the, the family members, they heard the celebration at the drill and even before the official siren could be rung, this man runs up to the brass bell and he rings it over and over in tears and joy and laughter began to be experienced all throughout a place, a place called, well, what would you call? What would you call the place where all the family's been living for the last 67 days? Camp Hope. The tents have been set up and sisters and mothers and fathers and brothers and children Families have been living day and night in anticipation for that moment that the bell would be rung. The hopes is that these men could begin to be rescued by the middle or latter part of this week in a little bullet-shaped vessel that's 24 inches wide. They've been told over the last several weeks that they need to start losing weight if they're not within 24 inches in every direction because that is the only way that they're going to be able to escape alive and each rescue will take over 20 minutes each. But let's go back to that for just a moment, Camp Hope. What would you do in Camp Hope? When we see what these individuals did, they, they had vigils and they prayed a lot and, and they cried a lot. And they thought about the way things were supposed to be instead of the way they were. But yet when they considered how they were, they felt anxious. And that brings us to a real important topic today. How much does hope change your life? How much does hope affect your day-to-day -day living? In other words, what have you done differently this past week? Simply because of hope. We've been looking at pursuing God. What does God love? What does God hate? I want to love the things God loves. I want to hate the things God hates. And it's interesting in this text that's been capably read to us, we see that the talk is about hope. But it's also about God's love and how God's love brings hope reminding us that this earth is not our home, that we're really waiting. We have hope to be rescued. We have hope that somebody's going to come and get us. We have hope that the place, the home that we are designed to live, that one day we will live there. And you know those questions... Like, how has hope changed your life? How has hope changed this past week? You know, sometimes I guess the reason that we struggle maybe to answer those is because we love this world so much. If we're not careful, we grow at home here. We begin to love everything about this life more than the eternal life. 
And so we began to look at leaving this earth and spending an eternity with God. And if we're not careful, we begin to look at it with dread, with fear of you, you don't want me to leave now. Let's not end it now. I, I don't, I don't want to go there now. Can you imagine the miners? Can you imagine the miners? The drill reaches their tunnel. And they say, oh, can you believe it? We've only been down here 67 days. And now they're going to ask us to leave. What a shame. I was hoping we'd get to stay several more months. Now, we know that that's not going to be said because we know that what awaits them is so much greater than where they are. Do you realize if we truly understood what awaits us, if we understood how great it is, we wouldn't dare say, oh, you mean I, I have to go now? We would say, is it time? I'd love to go. Can we go now? Lord, I pray that your coming be soon. And it's this great, brilliant writer, the great apostle John, who writes in a very wonderful, optimistic way to help us get a better grasp, a better understanding of hope. I'm reminded of a story that's told of a man, he was a denominational preacher, and he tells this story. He says, I had the opportunity that in my circle of, of religion, it was the first time ever that any of us have ever been able to go into Asia and do a, a seminar or conference. And he said, for six days, I was allowed to speak all day long on the scriptures to 1,700 people in Central Asia. It had never been done before. And he said it was so exciting. It was life-changing. And he said at the end of the third day, the leaders of the conference come up to me and they say to me, hey, uh, when are we going to get to the good stuff? Now, if, if you're a teacher or a preacher, can you imagine? That's not what you want to hear after you've been talking for three days out of the Scripture. And so he kind of hesitantly said, okay, the good stuff. Can you tell me what you believe is the good stuff? And they said, yes. We want to talk about heaven. The good stuff. He said, as I went back that night to the woman that I was staying with, she was a widow. She'd only been widowed two months. He said, I stayed in this little room with no possessions, no earthly possessions. He said, I knew that during the day for her to be able to cook me supper, she'd waited in line hours to buy one little package of horse meat and two eggs. And he said, I sat in that house that night and I began to realize she has nothing holding her to this earth. For them, they understand very well the hope of heaven. Everything about their life and their very existence is hanging on to that thick thread of the hope of heaven. And do you realize how foolish we are when we allow our earthly possessions to fog our vision and we really get to thinking that these things that are temporary, all of this surrounding that will not last, and we start enjoying it, building our life around it, and even calling it home. 
Friends, how much has hope changed your week? How much has hope changed your thinking? I'd like to show you one thing out of each of the five verses that were just read in our text. One thing out of each of the verses as it pertains to hope. And if you have your Bible open, look again there at 1 John. We're at the end of the second chapter. We'll bleed over into the third chapter. And notice again verse 28 as he says, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Notice that beginning and now. It's almost as if John is saying, listen, I want to kind of change the subject for a moment. I want to introduce something new to you. I, I, I want to talk in this epistle. I want, to, I want to talk with you about something different. What is it you want to talk about? He says, I want to talk about Jesus' second coming. I want to talk about the confidence that you can have. Now think about that. Right now, if individuals, if you knew Jesus was coming in three minutes... How many would be afraid? How many would be ashamed? How many would want to run and hide? How many would say, I've never really thought about it? Instead, John says, I want to talk about the coming of Jesus, and I want you to know that you can have confidence. You can run toward the coming. As a matter of fact, faithful Christians naturally would, because every day of their life, They've been living their life in view of the second coming, looking for it, watching for it, waiting for it. My father got off work the same time every day. And if he was working overtime, he always called and the whistle blew at a certain hour and we knew almost to the minute what time he would get home. I remember as a child going out and sitting on the fence that was in front of our house many times, watching down the road, waiting to see his vehicle around the last curve, the straightaway that our house sat on. Waiting, looking, anticipation, knowing it's happening and looking forward to it when it happens. He says, I want to talk to those that are going to enjoy that, those that are going to have confidence. And you know what he says about those? He says there in verse 28, they're going to be little children that abide in him. The word abide is that old English word that we don't use that often today. It, it means to stay. It means to remain. So who's going to have this hope? Who, who's going to look down the road of life and say, I've, I just can't take my eyes off looking for Jesus' return? Who's going to do that? It's going to be those who stay in Him. You remember last week when we looked at 1 John, the second chapter, verse 15, 16, and 17? Remember we, there John compares the worldliness and he compares then, well, let's just read it. Look at verse 15. It's probably in your same opening there. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father doesn't abide in us if we abide in the world. And now he writes and says, I want you to abide in Him because if the love of the Father is in you and you are in Him, you're going to look forward with confidence to the second coming. And so number one, hope. Hope is established. Hope is, it's, it exists only if we abide in Him. It's not for everyone. Not everyone will have that hope. But number two, look at verse 29, and let's see our hope is manifested in righteousness. Verse 29, in you know that He is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. 
Isn't it interesting how twice he says, if you know, or then he says, you know. When we speak to our children and we say to them, now you know what you're going to be expected to do. What have we just said? We have just said that we believe that we are reminding them of something that we have already talked about. Something that they already know. But we word it that way to say it's important. It ought to be in your memory. You ought to know this. And so now this older apostle is writing to his little children. And, and he's saying, you know, if you know, God is righteous. Isn't that beautiful? God always does the right thing. He's faithful. He's never let us down. That's why in verse 28, he can ask us to be faithful. Will you stay home? Will you abide in him? Will you be faithful? And if we answer that, yes, now we come to 29, and that is he is righteous. Now you be righteous. But notice he says, practice righteousness. If I were to say to you, here is a woman, and uh, she's an attorney, and she practices law. Say, do you hear a man and, and he is a doctor, he practices medicine. We begin to get a, a mental picture of that verbiage, practice. They not only do it, they know what they're doing. In other words, if, if someone were trying to work as a lawyer, but they didn't know law, we wouldn't describe that as practicing law. It's someone who knows it. It's someone who does it. Friends, is, is, is that who we are? Are we people who practice righteousness? Are we individuals so that day in and day out, that's what our life looks like? We know it. You remember a few weeks ago when we looked at 1 John, the second chapter, and we looked at those stages out of verse 12 and 13 and 14, how some were little children and some were young adults and some were more were older, mature adults like father figures. Remember we read in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, there's nothing wrong to be a babe when that's the age that you are spiritually. But if you are stuck on the milk and you're not moving to the meat, you become unskillful in the Word. But those that, that have the meat of the Word, they're growing, they're maturing, and he says they can, they're exercising their senses so that they can discern between good and evil. Do you realize here it's that same kind of language as he says, I want you to practice righteousness. I want you to know the difference in what is right and what is wrong. And I want you to have a life that over and over, you get up every day and you do right. And when you do wrong, it's the exception and you repent and you come back to what is right. Friends, you've heard me say it many times. It's because the Bible teaches it many times. We cannot overemphasize obedience. I'm not saying that to take away from the grace of God because there's nobody here perfect and there's nobody here that's going to merit their way to heaven. But friends, what God expects us to be is obedient. He expects us to abide, to stay in Him, to be faithful. He expects us to practice righteousness for that to be our life. What kind of spouse are you? Be righteous. What kind of child are you to parents? Be righteous. What kind of parent are you? Be righteous. What kind of worker are you? What kind of co-worker are you? What kind of neighbor are you? What kind of man? What kind of woman are you? Can you say in everything, I strive my best to abide with the Father and practice righteousness because after all, He's righteous. I want to be like Him. 
But then that brings us to where all of this hope comes from. The source of it. It was established in love. Look now to the third chapter in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now, that is powerful when we think about what manner of love. You remember there in your same opening probably in 1 John 4 and 16, God is love. And, and we think about the very fact that why did God send Jesus to this earth to redeem us? For God so loved the world. You see, there's this manner of love. As a matter of fact, when he says, behold, he's saying, do you see? Do you see the manner of love? Well, what is this manner of love? That he appears and that we have confidence. He appeared first in incarnation. And then after his death, he appeared again in re as resurrected individual. He's not dead. Death can't conquer God. God conquers death. And then he's going to appear again in that second appearing to take all those that are his, all those that have abided in him, all those that have received the love of the Father. Keep in mind, we can receive it or we can deny it. And all those that have received it, they're the ones that are looking for that appearing. And we realize none of us deserve it. It's only because of God's love. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were separated, God loved us so much that He offered His Son. Why? Because we're trapped miners down on this earth looking for a home. And we have hope. Camp hope. We have hope that there's something better. And we're not living for this earth. We're living for what is to come. And that brings us to the last two points that are kind of blend together to really bring all of this lesson together. As you look to verse 2, you see a fourth point, and that is hope waits on His coming. Look there again in verse 2. Love now, we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. And everyone that has this hope, what's this hope? It's the hope of Him returning and we being made like Him. Everyone who has that hope purifies himself just as He is pure. What have you done different this past week because you were waiting on His return? Now, I want to give you some application to this, but I want to make sure that you understand this isn't a preacher's spin. This is what the Lord teaches us over and over. For example, when Jesus taught about His second return, He didn't just say, hey, by the way, one day there's going to be this really great day and I'm going to come back. He said, I want to tell you about ten young women, ten virgins. Five of them are foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones, they were not waiting on the bridegroom's return and they weren't prepared and they lost out on eternity. He says, I want to tell you another story just to make sure that you understand that I'm coming again. This time I'm going to tell you about individuals that had talents given to them. One had five, one had two, and one had one. The one that had five and the one that had two, they lived their life in view of the fact that the master was returning one day. But the one that had one, they didn't live their life in view of the master returning, and so they just buried their talent. He says, also, 
Instead of just telling you a parable, I want to tell you about my second coming. I'm going to sit on the throne and, and individuals are going to come before me and, and they're going to give an account of their life. And what I want to know is I want to know things like this. What did you do for the individual that was naked? Did you give him clothes? Did you give food? Did you give water? Did you visit the sick? Did you take the stranger in? Did you visit the prisons? And remember each time he says, if you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. But all of this is around the teaching of I'm coming back again. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be like the five wise women? Are you going to use the life that God has given you now so that you literally say, everything that I do is because I know that he's coming back again. Are you going to see others, not from a fleshly perspective, but from a spiritual perspective saying, I know Jesus is coming back again. I want them to be ready and I want to see others the way Jesus wants me to see others. Do you live in view of the second coming? Literally, hope is not about twiddling your thumb saying, I'll just sit around and I'll wait for Jesus to come again. Hope is literally saying, I'm going to live every moment of the day based on the fact he may be coming in the next minute. Where do you want to be when Jesus comes again? That's literally the concept. If Jesus is going to come tonight at 6.30, be 1,000% honest with yourself. If you knew Jesus was coming tonight at 6.30, where would you be? Why? If you knew it, you'd say, I know if the church is worshiping God and Jesus is going to come during that assembly, I want to be with the church worshiping God. Well, why would any of us be here at 630 even if he's not coming tonight? It'll be the ones who live in view of that very same thing. We literally do what we do because we're saying, I don't know when Jesus is coming again, but I know that I do everything in view of Him coming again. When, when a 20-something or a 40-something goes to a, a club on Friday night to rub elbows with the world, to have a few cold ones with the world, to participate in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are they doing that because they're saying, I have hope that Jesus is coming again and I live each moment in view of that hope? No. See, now we're separating religion and Christianity. Christianity is all about hope. Listen, I don't live in view of hope and lie so I can get an extra $100 on expense account. I don't live in hope and lie so that my company can get a better rating. I don't live in hope and then try to figure out ways that I can get my neighbor back that's made me angry. When I live in hope, I live every day in view of the second coming. And that's why verse 3 says that hope purifies us. It makes us pure. Friends, if I were to ask you how much have you thought the last couple of weeks about heaven, and if you honestly could say, I've not thought about heaven at all, 
odds are you've probably not lived a very righteous life. That's what purifies us. That's what keeps us on a path that pursues God. When we live, as John was pleading with his little children, live in hope. Live in hope. Because that's what keeps us close to God. Not just now, but for an eternity. Maybe what we discussed this morning out of Scripture is brand new to you. Maybe you've never thought about living every moment in view of if Jesus comes back in the next few minutes. But if you've not, I ask you to go back and study this passage carefully. I ask you to see if that's what God is teaching and then let's do it. Maybe this morning you're ready to get your life on the path where you say, I'm ready for His return. That's what all of us need to be doing. None of us are ready for His return unless we're on that path that lives every moment focusing on Him. If we can help you get on that path, if we can help you to better pursue God, this morning's lesson is not an effort to throw rocks to discourage anyone. It's an effort to take the challenge that God gives us to live with a sober mind, to think clearly, and to realize that the truth is, one of these days, one of these days, we're going to get to leave here. And we're going to get to go to a place where God is. And only good and perfect things are there. And there won't be any funeral homes and hospitals and sickness and tears. It's going to be an awesome place. And we get to go there. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ, or if you're ready to restore your, your life, or, or if there's anything that we can do to encourage you on that journey, come as we stand and as we